The genius and power of the internet can't be overstated. This has started revolutions and shine light on the inner workings of our government. Our natural unalienable rights are now considered to be a dispensation of government. And freedom has never been so close to slipping from our grasp as it is at this moment. We also have access to information like never before. But at the same time, so much of the information is intended to deflect, confuse, and upset you. Made by people who want to profit off you or outright control you. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. All of this is exactly why we need to know history and philosophy. We need to understand where we came from so we can know where we're going. Welcome to the show. Would you like to hear a podcast? Hello, and welcome to another episode of Our Foundations. My name is Joshua. I will be your host as we get into some more topics on this parallel between the time of the Reformation, roughly, and modern times. Before I get started, I wanted to mention that I'm doing a t-shirt order. So if you are interested in an Our Foundations t-shirt, I will make a trade with you. Send me an email with the size that you want and an address to send it to, and then leave me a rating ideally, and a review or some feedback, and I will send you a shirt. That sounds like a pretty good trade to me. You get a shirt, and all you have to do is leave me a rating or a review or give me some feedback. So if you're interested in that, please do so. I will be placing the order sometime in the next, let's say, week or two. So if you are up to date with this podcast and listening in real time, Then send me an email and I will get that out to you. Today's episode will be focused on some examples that center around warfare. And the overall ideas that I'm pulling out of these are the idea of a just war, just war theory, the idea of centralization versus decentralization in an institutional framework, And then also the shift of power and legitimacy from one institutional power to another institutional power within a society. And these different examples kind of highlight these ideas and see how they play out. And we've got some really good modern parallels that are happening now or have happened in recent modern history that look very similar to the things that had happened prior. The first example I'll go with is probably the most obvious example for both time periods. That would be the Crusades from the time period prior to the Reformation, and then comparing that to the War on Terror, which is something that has only recently been outshined by things like climate change and Uh, global pandemics and things of this nature. So the idea is that the Crusades were kind of like a public-private partnership, in a sense. It was something that involved the church and also involved the nobility. So you had kings and nobles of different areas that would go and fight in a holy war on behalf of the church, who, to a large degree at least, were spearheading the operation and organizing it and determining who would go and fight who and why this was a just war, this kind of thing. And so that's kind of how things played out. And it really was this idea of just war theory. It was that these wars were a fight for morals. They were a fight for freedom. They were a fight for preemptive defense. 
these types of ideas. If you don't take these people out, they are going to come and take our lands. They are going to come and influence our culture and change our culture. They will destroy our morality that we've built up in this society. They will take our freedom away from us. They don't have the same values and morals and ideas about liberty that we have here in the West. And so, and the idea then was Christendom. And so, because of this, we need to get together, band together, group together under one banner and go and fight this enemy on this holy war. Now, sometimes there were other more specific reasons why they would go on a crusade. Oftentimes there was a specific reason, but generally they revolved around these broad ideas. And oftentimes it was a combination of all of these ideas was the excuse, at least, why these crusades were taking place. Now, again, I say that's an excuse because to a degree, all of these things do apply. But as far as does it really warrant building up a massive army and going on this giant war campaign? Probably not by these standards. If you really assess the true threat to the morality of society and your freedoms and the defense, what is the threat from these other people that are over there that are different than us? Um, In general, probably not something that justifies a crusade, but that's the way it was built and people bought it and people took part in it. There are plenty of examples of corruption with soldiers pillaging and raping and going to the church prior to going on a crusade and getting forgiveness in advance for certain sins that they knew they would end up committing. And so it's this Yeah, whole corrupt deal that looks very similar to things you see today. In the interview I did with Panoptic, we brought up Blackwater and some government contractors fighting wars in another land on a crusade against terror. Yeah, very familiar and all the corruption involved there. And that's just one specific example. But um, I I think you can probably easily see the parallels here with the war on terror. It is more an idealistic war. We are fighting for Western morality for our freedom here in our country and for the defense of our nation, whether that be the United States or the UK or whatever nation is involved. And it's this conglomeration of many different nations, just like the Crusades were often a conglomeration of many different nobles and rulers and kings that all got together under one banner. Just like now, we're getting together under the banner of often the United Nations, um, but definitely around these ideological concepts of morality, freedom, and defense. And uh, I've made the argument many times before that if you go and kill, let's say, a dozen people in the Middle East who you deem as terrorists, well, some of them probably are terrorists, but even the ones that are their families, especially in a shame and honor-based society that exists largely in the Middle East, their families want revenge. They want vengeance. You killed their family member. Not only that, but generally, when we do things like drone strikes, we've got these strategies such as the double tap strategy where we'll do a drone strike on a given target and you might take out a dozen people and only two of them are terrorists, but you accomplished your mission. You took out two terrorists. So congratulations. We did a great job, but that's not where it ends. What we do is we then wait for people to come in and try to help and come in for aid. And then we do a double tap and come in for the second drone strike and take everybody else out because they're probably collaborators and we need to get them too. 
And I would argue that that is a highly immoral strategy and way to conduct warfare. But hey, that's what we do. And it is definitely comparable to many of the things that happened during the Crusades that we could easily say were very immoral, very against the standards that the church had, just like these types of strategies are very against what the state says they do and how they operate. And so it it plays out in a similar way. There was one specific crusade that I wanted to mention, actually multiple crusades against one specific enemy, and that would be against the Hussites. I definitely can sympathize with the Hussites, with their theology and their practice of they went out and they left society and built their own community. They were largely self-sufficient. They operated under a system of free trade with everyone around. They had some resources that they harvested themselves and processed themselves, and that gave them a lot of the money, plus the trade really helped. And they shared that in common within their community. So it's almost like this anarcho-communist community here that thrived and did very well for a long time. Their way of doing things, though, was very different than the way that the church did, and the church deemed them heretics and worthy of a crusade against them. And every time the church went on a crusade against the Hussites, they lost, and they lost uh, definitively. They did finally conquer the Hussites after many, many years and many, many crusades, but in general, it was time and time again that these big crusades would come up against the Hussites, and they were so strong in their defense, and they had some really cool fighting techniques that they would do, such as doing, if you can think about like a Wild West movie, a Western movie, and they circle the wagons, and so these Native Americans are coming to attack this um, caravan of wagons heading out west, and so they circle their wagons together, and all the men get their weapons out, and so they are defending on all sides with these very strong barriers, the wagons themselves, the women and children are on the inside, protected, and this was a very uh, effective strategy. Well, a very similar thing was performed with the Hussites. That's where this idea roughly came from, where they would take these war carts that they would bring in with horses that would pull them up and they would form a circle or a square and they would connect these war carts together, often with chains, dig a ditch in the front of them, and they would be very hunkered down in a very effective defensive strategy. And they really couldn't be overtaken. This worked extremely well. But the idea here is that they were focused on defense. Uh, The Hussites were not trying to expand their empire, create an empire, or do anything of the sort. They were just protecting themselves against these other people that wanted to come over and take them out. And so this was a defensive war. Now, a modern example that I think we all can be very familiar with would be that of colonial America, In the time period of breaking away from the British Empire, what's known as the American Revolution or the War for Independence, when this happened, America and the colonies were in a very defensive position. They wanted to defend their territory. They weren't trying to take new territory to begin with. They were just trying to defend what they had against these invaders that were trying to impose different laws and regulations and taxes and things like this on them. They did not agree with this. The colonists didn't. And so they fought this defensive war largely against the British. Now, obviously, a war doesn't start off through defensive 
maneuvers, <laughs> there usually is some sort of offensive things that, hap- that happen that start the war. But the broad strategy of the colonists in the early period of the War for Independence was largely defensive. They did a lot of hit-and-run tactics and guerrilla warfare and hiding in the trees and using their superior marksmanship and things like this to their advantage. It was very effective. It wasn't until they started fighting like an empire that they really started doing very poorly. Uh, when we usually see in the history books, when the American Revolution first began and some of the first official battles were taking place, this was around the time period and shortly after this was really when George Washington took command of the troops and he was a failed British officer. He wanted to be a British officer in their army and it didn't really work out for him, but he liked their ideas, their strategies. He thought that was civil warfare and so that's what he tried to implement. And so they fought the British Uh, along these lines of warfare that was generally taking place at the time where you stand in a line, you load your muskets, you fire, next row steps up, these types of things where battles would take place in fields. And uh, the Americans didn't do quite as well when that started to happen. They also took on this empire strategy of expanding. Once they broke from Britain, then they started trying to expand their territories, whether it be against the French or the Spanish or the Native Americans, the Canadians. There were battles against all of these different people at different times. And the idea was that we needed to expand the American empire. And they didn't call it an empire at the time, but It's an imperial strategy versus a defensive strategy. And you end up with a lot of the issues that we had with the Crusades. If you look at the Crusades that were fought on behalf of the church, there were a lot of atrocities that took place. There were... There was a big cost to this. It cost a lot of money and resources and lives. And the same thing happened when America started fighting as an empire. There were many atrocities that took place. It did have a huge cost in lives as well as in resources and finances. And some would say that currently the American empire is stretched very thin. We are currently having this issue in the Middle East where we've had this 20-year-long war that seems to never end, and it's just draining billions of dollars every single year. The same way that the Russians were defeated in Afghanistan, it was to suck them into a war um, when we trained and armed bin Laden and his people and had them fight the Russians in Afghanistan, and we wanted this long, drawn-out warfare to bring the Russians in and then be sucked into this never-ending battle that sucked out all their resources and all their money and drained their economy. That was the goal, and we succeeded in that at that period in time. But then now it's happening to us as we are... the empire that is dominant in today's world. And so we see a lot of these issues that come with having an imperial strategy versus a defensive strategy. Now, switching a little bit to this idea of power shifting and legitimacy shifting between different institutional groups, another specific example that I want to pull from is during the War of the Roses, you had Edward IV, who came in and highly centralized the way things were being done, and he legitimized the idea of the state or the nation. And one of the ways he did this was through arbitrating instead of the nobles. He arbitrated things himself as a sovereign instead of the traditional practice of the nobles being involved in the negotiations and doing them amongst themselves. He centralized this and performed that function himself 
and became a sovereign and solidified his position through this method. And it worked very well. It seems very similar to when mega corporations decide global policy and regulation and best practices, certification requirements for an industry, these types of things. This happens a lot that helps to solidify their legitimacy and solidify their influence and power and position as institutions with global reach that are sovereign in and of themselves. They're starting to become this. They have not achieved that quite yet, but these are global corporations that span the whole world and have trade in all these different places, all these different countries, and they are the ones making a lot of the policies, a lot of the regulations, deciding best practices amongst themselves, and they are handling a lot of these negotiations themselves and through this gaining legitimacy. Now, another aspect was when the emperor used to be confirmed by the pope. And so if you look at the Holy Roman Empire, that's the way it was. The pope would come in and give his blessing and crown the emperor and make him legitimate as a legitimate emperor and sovereign over the entire empire. You can look at Charlemagne as one of the first and best examples of this, but this continued on and on for a long period in time. And what this evolved into, it evolved into the state taking over religion and the church. Whereas to begin with, it was the church who was confirming and legitimizing the state or the king, the emperor. And through time, as things evolved, the emperor started to get more and more power. The nobles started to get more and more power, and they took this away from the church and religion and ended up being sovereigns over a church. Oftentimes, you look at the Church of England or some other examples like that where the state itself was over the church. But even in other places, other countries, and other times, the state does often regulate how religions and churches are allowed to operate, under what circumstances, what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. There still is this aspect of sovereignty over religion and over the church within their territory, such as the Treaty of Westphalia and of Augsburg. I've mentioned those before. Another example of the state being over religion, whereas to begin with, it was the Pope himself, the head of the church, that was legitimizing the leader of the state, the actual emperor. And so you see this huge shift that happened over this long time period. And it's these things that we're pointing out that led to that. And these were, this is how this took place through these different shifts that I'm pointing out here. If you fast forward to the 30 Years' War, just after the Reformation, you had religion that was used as an excuse to conquer, a lot like the Crusades that I mentioned earlier, where you have these ideologies, these things that sound really good and very noble and used as an excuse for just warfare. That's what was used in the 30 Years' War. It was religious. But in reality, it was really just these different nobles and kings and emperors that wanted to gain more territory, gain more land, consolidate, uh, kick out their rivals. And so the religious aspect was in reality more of an excuse than anything else, more of a uh, way to gain legitimacy 
from the people that are being ruled, from the peasants and such. It looked good if the church was blessing it, and whatever church that may be. At this point in time, there were multiple different churches and denominations. But this was the way that things went, and this was the excuse that was given. It is very similar to how corporations and global NGOs, such as um, like the Rockefeller Foundation, the Gates Foundation, are the easy ones that I've mentioned many times previously. And those are probably some of the biggest foundations in the world currently. Well, what do they use as their excuse to gain legitimacy, to shift power and legitimacy from the state to themselves, to have more of an influence in the world? And that would be my parallel with conquering territory and gaining power over a given region, it's not necessarily that they're conquering territory, it's that they're conquering markets. They are gaining influence and power over certain groups of people, certain economies, certain areas of an economy. This is the way things are being done currently. It's not necessarily that they're trying to take land. It's not that the Rockefeller Foundation wants to take over uh, Western Germany for some reason. No, they don't. They, They do want influence throughout all of the EU, as well as, you know, many other countries and groups of countries. And how do they gain that influence? Well, it is, it has to be through just warfare. That's the only way people will get behind them. And what is just war theory today in this context? Well, it is things like climate change. It's things like equality, both economic equality, racial equality, and so many other different strains of equality that are being fought for in today's world. Um, This can broadly be be brought under the umbrella of social justice. This is a concept that's being fought for and is a a just war theory type idea. And so these things are being used as the excuse to gain more power, more influence, to play a bigger role in how things are developing worldwide. It's these worldwide organizations that are helping to create global policy for how to make sure the world is a place where we have worldwide equality and worldwide social justice and cooperation and peace and all these you know wonderful feel good things and so it's this idea of just warfare that's being used for that. The next example brings us into the idea of centralization versus decentralization. It would be Charles the Bold. He had a standing army and he had legitimacy. And this was a good bit before most other people had standing armies at the time. He did have one and he was seen as a legitimate ruler, but he ended up fighting against the Swiss and their allies and went broke and was defeated by this decentralization force of the Swiss and their allies who they were not centralized under one ruler that was highly organized. They didn't have the same concept of a standing army from one centralized nation or whatever you want to call it. That was very decentralized. That was the way that the Swiss and their allies fought their battles, and they were very successful. It went very well. And Charles the Bold, even though he had this highly centralized standing army, he had the support and legitimacy of his people, and he had lots of resources, uh, he used them all up, went broke, and was defeated. So this is kind of similar to the British versus the United States. I mentioned that example earlier, where you have the British that were this strong, centralized group that had legitimacy all around the world, and they had one sovereign leader, and they went up against these 
kind of independent colonies that did not have a standing army. And the British actually started losing way more than it was worth. And they ended up being defeated in this example. The idea here is that decentralization is great for supporting defense and liberty, whereas centralization is very good for expansion and control. They have their own strengths and weaknesses, but this seems to be the generalized breakdown from a broad view. So if you look at something like the economy, you have small businesses, you have a robust system. It's very resilient and diverse if it's a decentralized economy. You have all these different businesses, all these players. It's spread apart. Um, things may be less efficient and a little more expensive. And that's part of it. And that overall dynamic of things being more expensive usually is a market dynamic that filters out certain ideas that are not as productive, efficient, or effective, and really brings in the ideas that are more efficient, more effective, and that are promoting innovation and things like this. And so uh, that dynamic kind of needs to be there in the market to promote these things. And it works very well for these types of things. But a centralized economy is much more efficient but it is much more vulnerable to large problems. There is also less choice for consumers. It can be controlled by a very small group. And although this has benefits in uh, cost and efficiency and effectiveness, theoretically, and let's go ahead and give them that, it does create these other issues where if one link in your supply chain goes down, it can kind of throw a wrench in the entire economy or entire sector. And so... It is a lot more vulnerable from that perspective, and the consumers don't have nearly as many options for what to buy, what to purchase, what services to use, because there's only a handful of groups that are providing these, and they are decided from a more centralized perspective. And so it's not all these tiny little businesses and independent entrepreneurs that are trying to appease the markets and meet demand. It's just these large corporations and large groups that are trying to reach the bulk of society or the bulk of a market, and there are less choices, less options. It does, again, make it more cost-efficient, cost-effective, and there are benefits to this, but there are weaknesses as well. One of the ideas that I thought of as I was making these notes were some ideas looking forward to the future, the idea of technocracy and anarcho-capitalism. So if you remember the episodes I've done on these, the idea is that technocracy is highly centralized and it does revolve around economic ideas and an economic structure more than political. And same with anarcho-capitalism. It's the idea broadly of free markets, which is very economic in nature. But the difference here is that technocracy is highly centralized, anarcho-capitalism is uh, more than likely highly decentralized. And we don't have either one of these, so we don't know for sure how they would play out individually. But my idea here is that we would see the same benefits. Under technocracy, it would be much more efficient. It would be probably more cost-effective. You could do a lot more and have a lot more control. And it would be good for that. But if you want things like liberty and a robust economic system, freedom of choice, and a lot more diverse options, then anarcho-capitalism would be a much better strategy. And if you think about the warfare example of centralization versus decentralization, uh, technocracy would be a more imperial strategy because they have to control the entire market of a given area, whether it be a continent or the world or whatever other group it may be. They 
they control the whole area, period. Whereas with anarcho-capitalism, you can have independent groups, independent areas, independent uh, societies that are formed as different communities within the system, and they can do whatever they want, really. You could have a technocratic city or state, um, and the whole nation could be more under the idea of anarcho-capitalism and still provide for that. So whereas you can't have anarcho-capitalism under a technocratic society that doesn't work together, you can have a technocratic community under the idea of anarcho-capitalism. But the idea here is that with technocracy, the goal would be to take over and to control, and it would be very good for doing that. But anarcho-capitalism, the decentralized system, would be very good for liberty and defense and would be extremely good at that. And historically, the group that is decentralized, focused on defense and liberty, when they are true to these ideas, they are very effective against the centralized system and often win out over the centralized system. So um, that's kind of interesting. I haven't really played out this to any further degree. It's just something that crossed my mind and thought I would mention it since I've talked about these things. But I think that will wrap up everything I'm going to talk about here. This does wrap up in my notes broadly the sections talking about the macro view of state type deals and shifts in power, this kind of stuff. And so the notes that I have going on from here are on topics like theology, economics, education, and technology. And they all are, of course, around the same principle of comparing the Reformation time to modern times and how all this plays out together. So I hope you come back next time and listen to the next episode as I come back and start the the next section, the next subject. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you specifically to the patrons for your support, for the ratings and reviews, and for the connections that you guys have made. I've had some communications come across to me, and so I greatly appreciate you reaching out. I did also officially post another interview that I had done on the Patreon page. So if you're a patron, you can go there and listen to that as well. That's officially there. I've been talking about doing that for a while and just hadn't gotten around to it. I also have two more interviews that I have not gotten the finished edited recordings back from the people I did the interview with. So whenever I do get those back officially, then I can post those ones as well. So until next time, I'm out. Peace. This has been another episode of Our Foundations Podcast. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. Yeah. Thank you. Goodbye.